This is a Redmond City Council study session held on Tuesday, February 13th, 2024, commencing at 7.27 p.m. Uh, council members in attendance are Council Member Anderson, Council Member Salahuddin, Council Member Stewart, Council Member Nueva Camina, Council Vice President Forsyth, and myself, Council President Kritzer. Um, uh, not in attendance is Council Member Fields. There are four items on our agenda tonight. Cascade Water Alliance informational briefing, groundwater protection and water quality update, Redmond 2050 planning commission recommendation for housing and overlake, and council talk time. The first item on the agenda is the Cascade Water Alliance informational briefing. Chris Stanger, Deputy Public Works Director, will introduce this item. Good evening, Mayor, Council, and uh... Redmond leadership. I am Chris Stinger, Deputy Director of Public Works, oversee the environmental programs and utilities. Uh, today I'm joined with uh, Jessica Atlickson, who will introduce a partner with the Cascade Water Alliance. Um, today we talk about one of the most critical life-sustaining resources, which is water. Um, so you'll get a couple of good briefings tonight, starting with this Cascade informational brief. And I hand it over to Jessica Atlickson, the environmental geologist for the city of Redmond. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Uh, good evening. Um, I'm Jessica Atlaxon, as, as Chris mentioned, um, and I support Amanda Balzer uh, in staffing of the Cascade Water Alliance. Um, so the presentation tonight is an informational briefing uh, to provide an overview of Cascade, um, our participation as a member, and the status of ongoing contract negotiations to ensure adequate water supply uh, for today and future generations. Uh, so in Redmond, we have a hybrid system, uh, and approximately 60% of our water comes from Cascade Water Alliance, and the other 40% is, per, excuse me, 40% is provided by groundwater uh, municipal supply wells that's operated by the city. Uh, Chuck Clark is here with us from Cascade, and he will discuss Cascade. And following this presentation, uh, you'll hear about the groundwater supply uh, wells that Redmond operates from myself and other water utility staff. So with that, I will hand it over to Chuck. Thank you, Jessica. Um, thank you, Jessica. And it's a pleasure being here this evening. I, I'm going to start by giving you a quick overview of Cascade and maybe a smidgen of history um, quickly. Uh, a summary of some of the discussions we've been having with Seattle and Tacoma about potential long-term extensions for water supply for Cascade and for therefore for Redmond. And then a discussion about uh, the timeline for making some of those decisions. Next. Um, Cascade has seven members. Um, as many of you know, if you, if you don't know, it was set up about 15 or 20 years ago. It was set up actually when I was uh, partly when I was deputy mayor at Seattle and partly when I was running the Seattle Public Utilities. So we actually negotiated the first water agreement with Cascade. Um, and after later on, uh, I ended up going to work at Cascade for about a decade. I uh, have gone back uh, and am working for the board right now in having discussions and negotiations with Seattle and Tacoma about long-term water supply. Seven member agencies, uh, those members haven't changed um, in the last uh, decade. It serves about 380,000 people. Um, it is about 25% of the water that, uh, that Seattle serves in King County. Uh, 
goes to goes through Cascade to its members. So we're a significant portion of Seattle's water use. Um, the board of directors uh, is the policy board for um, Cascade staff. Um, uh, they are the ones that uh, give direction to Cascade and make determinations over long-term decisions related to the uh, future of Cascade and where we get our water um, from. When Cascade was originally uh, formed, um, a year or two after it was formed, they went out and they purchased uh, Lake Taps from Puget Sound uh, Energy as a potential long-term water supply source uh, for the region. Um, and. Uh, we're hoping at the time that maybe they would never have to use it, but at least they had the insurance policy of having Lake Taps as a backup supply for the region if water became a problem. Um, they uh, then contracted with Seattle for a long-term contract. Next. Um, most of the work that Cascade staff does is in the operation and maintenance and capital improvements related to the Lake Taps facility. Um, it is... A, an old facility uh, that was run by Puget Sound Energy to produce power. Um, so it has an old powerhouse. It has pipes that lead from, uh, that lead to Lake Taps um, and that divert water from the White River. And uh, they have a diversion out of Lake Taps that goes down through the powerhouse, which is uh, um, no longer used uh, for power. Um, the, the, you know, Lake and itself can, contains about seven or eight billion gallons of water, so it has a fairly significant amount of water. When Cascade first purchased, the water was diverted out of the White River through a plywood um, flume um, that, that Puget Sound Energy had used for about 70 or 80 years, um, which has, has since been replaced. But we also do financial management for the members, uh, property management, long-term planning, and water supply contract management. Uh, the water supply uh, from Seattle, the, the current contract, um, runs at the current level through 2039 and then starts to decline at about 5 million gallons um, a year uh, through uh, 2063. At that point, uh, we still will be using about 5 million gallons of water a day from Seattle, but uh, it, would, it will be reduced um, and then stay at that level um, going forward. Uh, it means that we're now uh, currently um, uh, using, uh, continue to use independent supply. So as mentioned earlier, a lot of your water comes from your wells within the city. Uh, there are other members, the same thing. Um, so we have uh, three, three member agencies that use uh, wells. For some, it's been a little bit challenging lately because of PFAS uh, and some other issues that uh, they have been experiencing, particularly in Sammamish Plateau and Issaquah. Um, and they're dealing with the issues associated with, uh, with their wells at this point. Um, the business model really was designed to, uh, in the hope that Cascade could be an instigator of regionalization of water supply. The uh, board at when Cascade was originally set up was hoping that there would be inner ties eventually built in the region that would allow the utilization of all the water that was available uh, with the hope that um, we would use every ounce of water available before we had to go out and build additional supplies. Um, that is still the hope of the board, uh, that in the long run, a regional delivery system that could include 
Pierce County, King County, and Snohomish County would be the best way to provide water uh, for the region. There is ample supply uh, of water in the region uh, through 20, at least through 2060, if not 2100. Um, if you were able to utilize all that water without even having to build uh, lake taps. Uh, we have approached um, both Seattle and Tacoma and asked them for uh, proposals on extending the contract that does start to drop with Seattle in 2039. We've asked them for proposals on what they would be willing to provide um, Cascade uh, for future water supply. Next. Um, this is a chart that just gives you a feel for um, some of the things that have occurred. If you look back to 2007, the estimates for the region um, by Seattle and Tacoma and Cascade um, and Everett, as you can tell with that green line, they assumed that water demand was going to be exceptional and was going to uh, continue to grow at pretty stratos uh, stratospheric rates. Um, the recent 2019 uh, chart, which is in blue, shows you what the current forecasts are, which may still be slightly large um, when you look at supply. If you look at Seattle, in 1992, since 1992, population growth for their service area has been about 35%. Total reduction in overall water use has been about 35%. So population's gone up, water use has gone down. That downward trend slash flat trend is continuing. Uh, a lot of it has been uh, through efficiency changes, uh, conservation, uh, changes at, uh, in standards, plumbing standards and others. All of that has led to uh, a reduction in use. Uh, continues to be uh, the use, the challenge of use continues to be peak use, summer use, um, which tends to be about 1.6 to two times what winter use is um, as people um, get involved in gardening and washing their vehicles and doing other things during the summer. Next. Um, when the board uh, took a look at the contract expiring and looked at the amount of time, it, lead time it would take if we didn't get a contract extension and needed to go off and start looking at uh, building the uh, treatment at Lake Taps, they gave a challenge to the staff that we should approach both Seattle and Tacoma and look at trying to get a, at least a 20-year extension um, in our contract, get water beyond 2039 for at least 20 years from either Tacoma or Seattle. Um, they wanted it to, to be at reasonable um, and predictable costs. Uh, they wanted uh, hope and they wanted it to be a better financial outlook than if we had to build Lake Taps um, so that we would continue to push Lake Taps off as long as we could if we could get um, an agreement in place that would be more uh, beneficial to all, all of our customers. Um, they wanted flexibility and certainty um, for future uh, elected officials that would be on the board. They wanted the certainty of supply, but they wanted flexibility knowing that conditions will change. What we thought 10 or 15 or 20 years ago is not what is happening today. What is going to be happening in 10 or 15 or 20 years is not what we anticipate today will happen in the future. It, it, you know, whether it's climate change, whether it's uh, per capita water use, whether it's de uh, overall demand, uh, all of those things are going to have an impact. And so there needs to be some flexibility for future 
decision makers to be able to look at what options are available to keep open the opportunity of making future decisions that are in the best interest of their, uh, of their customers. Um, and they were hoping that uh, they would also be able to start down the path of a regional partnership, which would lead to uh, a regionalization of water supply. Next. We have gotten proposals back from Seattle and Tacoma. Um, the Seattle proposal, uh, they have taken a very conservative view um, on water supply. They were willing to provide a 10-year extension. Um, uh, with a 14, what I call a $14 million penalty clause um, that says because you've paid slightly less per unit of water than our other customers have for the last decade, we wanna make that up if we're gonna give you an extension. Um, so the 20 to 24, 40 to 2049 extension is about an additional $14 million in additional payments that would have to be negotiated with Seattle. They then offer two uh, potential five-year extensions. If we wanted to get the first five-year extension and get a guarantee, they want another $20 million for that first five-year extension. Um, again, uh, as uh, a, what I would call a penalty charge for, to make up for what they thought that they had lost because they charged us less than the other wholesale customers. And then they said, and, and if I was gonna, you get the 10 years, 100% guaranteed, I'd say the first five-year uh, option is probably about 75 to 85% guaranteed. The third year, the, th the second five-year option is about 70, 75, 80% guaranteed. And then they put on the table a 40-year after that, another 40-year option where there would be a 25% premium that we would pay beyond what all the other customers would pay. But they put terms and conditions on the 40-year extension that I would say the relative risk is about, it's probably about a 10% chance we'd be able to, uh, to utilize that option based on the conditions they put in place. That includes building a regional transmission line. Um, so the Seattle agreement uh, doesn't meet a lot of the tenants that the board originally set out. And at this point, I don't think we're gonna see any changes from the Seattle offer. The Tacoma offer, um, actually slightly different since last Friday, um, the 20-year guaranteed contract and the five-year likely extension now is a 25-year guaranteed contract. They uh, have done a lot of work and they know and are comfortable now that they could give us a 25-year extension. Their, their pricing is about 75% of what Seattle's pricing is. It's significantly less but we still would be required to build a pipeline to, to deliver that water from the south to the north. Um, and it uh, would allow Lake Taps to be built if it needed to be built in the future in two phases. And we needed a pipe, we would need a pipeline if we ever were to use Lake Taps anyway. So we would be able to utilize any construction that we did um, for uh, eventual Lake Taps water if necessary. The next slide. Um, from a uh, financial proposal basis, the 10-year uh, guaranteed extension from Seattle is worth about $53 million um, to Cascade because you calculate net present value of building Lake Taps and how long you can push it off. Um, so it is beneficial even with the penalty uh, fees that they built in. The two five-year extensions are worth about another $130 million, uh, again, for 
pushing off to the future uh, lake taps. And the 40-year extension, although not a high probability we get it, has a huge value because then you're not building lake taps till 2100. Um, so it does have a tremendous financial benefit. The problem is the chance of getting it is not exceedingly high. Um, the Tacoma offer at this point, the 25-year offer is worth about $300 million, $299 million um, in that present value. Uh, so it allows us to have a, a kind of moderation in rates over the next uh, 20 years. Next slide. Um, so you see longer certainty plus flexibility with Tacoma. It puts the board in a position and you all in a position probably in another 15 years of looking what alternatives are available out there. Again, Seattle would be an option at that point. That we would know more about what's going on. They would know more. There would be different people running the organization in Seattle. Um, if you looked at uh, the Tacoma proposal, they're not sure that they might, but they might have additional water also available as they look to the future. So there would be options available or, or like taps. So it preserves that flexibility for the board, again, to look at trying to find the best alternative for providing water to all of its customers. Um, the, uh, it also reduces the, the construction costs for lake taps because it allows to be done in phases and you only have to do the first phase at a, at a minimum amount and uh, you're not having to build the whole project at once. Um, and it provides really an opportunity for regionalism and improved resiliency. If you can intertie the region, all you have to do is look at earthquake risk in the region, um, uh, looked at, look at uh, other challenges related to climate change or climate differences in the region, and uh, any inner ties would allow the ability to move water around. If you, as you well know, Seattle put a curtailment in the fall on water supply. This year, Tacoma had no curtailment on water supply. If there was an inner tie between Seattle and, and Tacoma, uh, the Seattle system and the Tacoma system through Cascade, we would not have had to go to curtailment in the fall like Seattle did. Um, so there are some, it does provide a lot of benefits in, in the long run. Next slide. Uh, from a schedule, we're early in the process. Uh, we're in the March-April timeframe where we're out, uh, where I'm out talking to individual councils and commissions uh, this month and next month. Uh, I was at Issaquah last evening um, with the city council uh, here tonight, um, and then we'll be uh, in front of all of the the base, the councils and commissions by the end of March. Um, then in uh, what we're looking at from the board uh, sometime in that April timeframe, more than likely, is do they wanna give us some direction uh, to do additional negotiations with Tacoma and or Seattle um, for actually getting down into the nitty gritty of a, of a contract? Um, and uh, if we get guidance from the board in that uh, April timeframe, um, then April through September, we would be negotiating with Tacoma and or Seattle for specifics uh, that we would then bring back to the board with a decision from the board sometime in October, November. So the last, the very last part of 2024, we would end up making a decision. And that's about as quick as I can go through that. <clears throat> Well, thank you so much, Mr. Clark, for, the, for that presentation. Are, are there questions from the council? Council member, 
Did you raise your hand? Oh, Councilmember Stewart. Thank you so much for um, being with us tonight and visiting with all the other councils. That's quite a roadshow. <laughs> um, I, I really um, appreciate the chance to hear a bit more about the decision ahead. Obviously, Redmond is a city that prides itself on its sustainability. And uh, to me, the, I, the burning question I had for you coming in, um, you were able to answer in the chart that I clearly didn't understand the first time I saw it. Um, but not only individual action matters, um, but also the, the way we are designing our growing populations and, and the places where they live and work to use less water. Wow, it's clearly making such a difference. And so um, we're gonna be talking later tonight um, more about how our housing continues to grow here in the city of Redmond. And I'm just really glad we had a chance to see this reminder here too about design and whatnot. So um, thanks for being here. I actually don't have a question, just wanted to hold some space to say, wow, quite the decision. I'm really glad that Mayor Bernie is on the board to help uh, inform that decision. And yeah, the city of Redmond, we care a lot about this. So well, thank we you. are in the middle of taking a look at the at a new forecast of demand um, and we will we're doing that because we want to be able to present that to the board over the next few months before we get much further into this because you know when you start looking at demand you look at that curve it drives the, some of the decisions you're making mm -hmm. and the one area where when you look at those graphs that drives everything like I said earlier is peak use so as we look at um, the future, the more we can do to drive down peak use from what it has been historically. And it's down a lot anyway. I mean, on a peak day in 19, in the early, late 80s, early 90s, Seattle supplied about 320 million gallons of water in the region. Probably in the last 10 years, the highest peak day has been about 210, 215, huge reduction. Um, and the more you can continue to push on the peak, um, the longer it goes out without needing to build additional supply. Sure, absolutely. Thank you so much. Council Vice President Forsyth. Thank you. Uh, definitely appreciate the, the in-depth knowledge that you provided and the insight into what we're looking at in the future um, and and understanding the, the broader picture. Um, when we were, uh, a lot of us were recently at a conference and communicating with a bunch of our neighboring fellow electeds, and I had learned that the city of Bothell has a water company that is bottling that was recently bought out by Nestle. Um, we know historically that they have done some pretty detrimental things to water supply, and I'm interested if you can enlighten us on what we're doing to safeguard ourselves from similar actions um, within within this region, within Cascade Water Alliance, and, and what we can do to protect ourselves um, from, from that sort of thing occurring? Well, it's, it's actually pretty simple. The board can just say no um, to any future offers for purchasing the water supply system. I mean, you know, there are benefits of partnerships, private-public partnerships, and in fact, we use Veolia for some of the operational issues down at uh, Lake Taps rather than um, staffing for that. So, but we are, we own the system, we own the water right, we own the supply, um, and we direct them on what we want them to do. That is a good public uh, private partnership. Selling your water supply, um, you lose control. And as much as you want to say you have control, you still lose control. And that's been a challenge uh, across the country uh, for the last 30 or 40 years, not only on the water side, but also on the wastewater side. 
So we are all um, trying to safeguard as much as we can the ability for the elected officials to be able to continue to make the policy decisions and uh, guide how our water supply is going to be used in the future. So it's a great question, and it's something that we need to safeguard all the time. Thank you. I really, truly appreciate that. It's definitely something that keeps me up at night. So I appreciate um, the the work you all are doing and that we will have those protections. Thank you. Council Member Anderson. Thank you so much, Mr. Clark. It's been a, a pleasure serving on the Cascade Board for the past several years. Um, and I just wanted to congratulate your staff and just say how outstanding it was to work with the, the group, especially on the financial side. This is some of the stuff that council doesn't get to see the details of. But um, one of the things I really appreciated was working with uh, the finance staff, especially Ed Sebron. Um, <clears throat> Uh, what is a really careful process that actually has a really big impact here in the city of Redmond on our, our customers, our rate customers. So the process for considering the impacts to multiple cities within the region for the rate charges that will be adopted by the board before they come to the councils and also that you're coming here to council to tell us about them before we, we get a chance to, to think about them and have those questions asked. I think that's really helpful. Um, and so I just wanted to say thank you for that. And the other thing that we did last year um, that was really helpful just to, to get um, sort of a line of sight into um, the nature of the city's water supply itself. We just asked simply to split out the Novelty Hill utility district area versus the downtown area. And it's going to help us understand sort of where that resource goes within the city. So I wanted to say thank you for that. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. And my, my question for you is how snowpack looking for this year? Uh, not particularly good uh, at the moment. I mean, you're Probably, I, I haven't looked today. It's probably in the 50 or 60 percent range. The, you know, the Seattle reservoirs, um, as long as they continue to operate them in a dynamic way, um, and you know, historically they used to be, have what they called a, a static rule curve, which says on June 1st this is what you ought to be, on May 1st this is what you ought to be for reservoir levels. Um, we changed that when I was there and went to a dynamic curve, which said, if you've got a year where it looks like this, then let's not let it be because you're always balancing between flood pocket in those reservoirs and releases. And if you, uh, if it gets to the spring, a spring like this, where you don't have a lot of snow and you're not going to have a big snow, uh, melt, then you can probably take a little bit more risk related to keeping less of a flood pocket in those reservoirs. And so my guess is they're going through that right now, um, trying to find that right balance. But it is not uh, a particularly good snow year. It's been pretty warm lately, so. Okay, so instead of a full fire hose of information, we'll get only 60%. Yeah. Okay, great, thank you. Yeah, so, well, yeah and, and the snow is really your savings account, you know, and rain's your banking account and snow's your savings account. and. It's not, not good when you don't have any savings. So it's, it can be a problem um, as, as you look at that. And Ed is um, one of a kind related to finance stuff um, and has done yeoman's job uh, in, look, in analyzing all of this stuff. Some of the poor uh, staff have been through, I think, three, four to five hour sessions now. We, we call them deep dives, which were where they're sitting through and, ha and getting this in excruciating detail. But at the end of the day, we want as much transparency as possible and people to be as informed as possible when they make the decision. 
Thanks. Um, and also wanted to acknowledge the staff support for this group is also amazing. So thank you. Thank you. And and thank you, Councilmember Anderson, for your service on, on that board the last several years. Are there other questions from the council? Okay, then I'll, I'll make my comment or question um, here. Uh, we'll also say thanks for the, the presentation and, and to the, the previous comments, um, you know, as, as we are seeing the impacts of climate change on our snowpack and, and the impacts on water supply. I know we've been seeing um, articles popping up in the newspapers. So the public is becoming aware. I know this, this last, um, as you were talking about a little bit around how we think about our own consumption. I know this last summer, there was a call from Cascade Water Alliance um, to ask people to to reduce their consumption of water. Um, can you just share more about that in terms of your, your strategy of engaging the public and what the public might expect going forward? Is that gonna be a regular thing we'll be hearing in the summer or other times? Yes, um, you are gonna be hearing more as you look to the future. I think one of the issues that we're taking a look at now related to the demand forecast for the future is trying to look at uh, for lack of a better term, manipulating the peak use factor and looking at what the implications are of driving that peak use down, that summer use down. And it appears that it can have uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of benefit to the ratepayers if we can figure out a way to do that because it allows us to go to take the existing water supply and utilize that supply for longer and longer periods of time. So you're probably gonna see uh, a increased focus and discussion um, amongst the Cascade members about what kind of programs do you put in place to deal with peak water use. You know, there are things that have been done in other places. If you, you know, I, I knew the people down in Vegas, they did a, a turf buyback program um, that they went out and they purchased back uh, turf. Um, so that it didn't have to be watered. Um, you know, there are uh, kind of sprinkler support systems you can put in place to allow people to have their systems examined so that they're more efficient. So there are uh, public education opportunities also where you start early in the schools and others and are educating people on water use and the importance of water um, in the region for the future. So. I think you're gonna see a continued elevation of that discussion and, and some debate uh, that will happen related to that going forward um, because it does make a big difference in what supply looks like. Yeah, and uh, and I will say, you know, here in the city of Redmond, we have a, an exciting climate action challenge where people can opt in and be able to look at how they can reduce their use of various resources. Um, so, you know, it'd be great to be able to see partnership with the cities on that work. Uh, Mayor Bernie? Yeah, I just wanted to add, um, that's part of the pleasure of being a partner with Cascade Water, be a, a member of the Alliance, um, is that we have really great opportunities for our community members to participate in. Um, we have, uh, Cascade has a gardening series that used to be, had to, used to have sign up and go in person, but a good thing of the pandemic was that they all switched to online. And so now instead of a limitation of like 30 people to be part of these sessions, I think one of the last ones had like 240 or 280 people could participate online with um, amazing gardeners um, to help community members figure out differently how to water, use water in their gardens and their yards. Um, we also, you know, we're looking at um, 
you know, encouraging community members to just look differently at their water use in their in their houses, in their yards. Um, and so there's a lot of resources that are available through Cascade, um, through the, our city's website that directs to Cascade um, for commu community members who are starting to think that these are the months that people start thinking about gardening and what that might look like. And I would just um, suggest to people to use that as a resource for them. And also, we're also a, a sponsor of the Northwest um, Garden. Garden what is it? I haven't been to it in so long. Flower and the, the Flower and Garden Show that's happening this weekend um, in Seattle and Cascade is one of the sponsors in part because of the really robust work we do on conservation and um, regional water use. So um, I encourage everyone to take a look at that as well. But, um, you know, it's a really a fantastic, I want to thank Ch Chuck as well. You're coming out of retirement to help us out, yeah. but, um, I've you know. I've retired five times. Now. I know, it's five times. So. <laughs> um, but uh, they're really an amazing partnership. It allows the city of Redmond to be part of this regional water um, resource that um, benefits all of our ratepayers and will benefit all of our ratepayers into the future as well versus relying solely on our own water supply so and our only our own contractability so I'm really excited for the continuation of this partnership so thank you all for being here tonight I'm also a Woodenville water commissioner so I do spend a lot of time oh. dealing with water issues wonderful well <laughs> yeah. thank you so much are there other questions all right, seeing none, we'll say thank you very much. And move on to the next item on our agenda. The next item on the agenda is groundwater protection and water quality update. Chris Stanger, Deputy Public Works Director, will introduce this item. Good evening once again. To segue from the last presentation, we'll now be uh, moving on to how Redmond plays a role um, with our amazing staff on the day-to-day -day, um, pursuit of water production and water quality. So you'll get a uh, Windows insight on what goes on uh, every day with the staff at Redmond. I hand it over to Ernest Fix, our maintenance manager for the utility. All right. Sorry, let me get that arranged here. Thank you, Chris. Um, and thank you, Council, for uh, having us here this evening. Um, so the purpose of um, tonight's presentation is to provide a high-level informational overview on the groundwater, uh, on groundwater production and the drinking water quality system. Um, in short, we're going to be giving you the basics on how we go from a raw natural resource into the reliable, clean drinking water that uh, you get out of your tap. Um, the primary focus is going to be on our uh, on the water that we produce out of our aquifer. Um, we will also touch briefly on the supply from Cascade Water Alliance, who we just heard from as well. Um, but we'll try to eliminate their redundant information there. Um, so we're going to walk through the water system, give a light touch on Aquifer 101 um, to get you familiar with our groundwater resource. And uh, then we're going to transition over to our wells treatment system and distribution system. Uh, we have two subject matter experts with us this evening um, who will lead the presentation. Um, you've already heard from Jessica, but I, or, um, but I will uh, reintroduce her. Um, so Jessica Alexson is one of our senior environmental scientists. And then we also have uh, Gabby Wolf, who is our water quality operations supervisor. And um, with that, I will turn it over to Jessica. Great, thanks so much, Ernie. 
Um, so we've talked a little bit about this, but Redmond is very fortunate that we have a hybrid water system. So basically what that means is we have two different sources of water. Uh, the first one is from our groundwater. We have five municipal wells that supply about 40% of our drinking water here in Redmond. Uh, the service area where that groundwater serves is shown on the map in the tan color there. Um, as we heard earlier, we also receive about 60% of our water from Cascade Water Alliance. Uh, that comes from the Tolt Reservoir, and that, surface, or that service area is shown in that kind of bright green color on, on your map. Um, and then you'll notice that in some areas it's that dark green color. Um, we do have some parcels that still have their own private well, so they, receive, they pump groundwater for themselves. Um, the important thing about having a hybrid system is it really provides the city resiliency and flexibility, especially to respond to any emergencies such as drought or earthquakes. Um, through Cascade, we do participate in regional partnerships and we, you know, we have a place at the table when we're talking about regional water conservation issues. Uh, so for the remainder of this presentation, we're really going to focus on that tan area of the map and talk about our groundwater supply. Uh, so now we'll talk a little bit about uh, the Aquifer 101, our uh, Redmond's alluvial aquifer. And any evening where I get to use geology terms is a good evening for me. So <laughs> thanks for being part of that. Um, so alluvial basically just means anything, any sediment deposited by a flowing body of water. So anything a river or a stream deposits. Uh, so in Redmond, our aquifer is found in the, the river valleys, you know, Bear Creek, Evans Creek, and Sammamish, Sammamish River. An aquifer is an underground body of water. So I like to think of it as like a big rock sponge. A lot of people think groundwater is just like a river flowing underground, but it's actually water in tiny pores between like rocks and pebbles and that type of thing. Um, so as I was saying, uh, our aquifer is, is found in kind of that darker area of, of the map that you're seeing right now um, in the river valleys. Um, in general, it flows in the directions of the arrows that you can see on the map. So kind of, you know, down Bear Creek and Evans Creek and eventually uh, ending up uh, discharging into the Sammamish River. Uh, the five stars on the map are our five uh, groundwater supply wells where we pump the groundwater from. Uh, so our aquifer is, is very shallow. The schematic shown um, on the slide shows that it's only about 5 to 15 feet from the surface to the top of the aquifer, um, especially in the downtown and Marymore areas. Um, the aquifer is unconfined. Yay, another geology term. So basically that just means that there's no layer of like clay or something that's going to stop the water or any contaminants getting from the aquifer. It's just going to go straight from the surface down to the aquifer. Um, and you'll also notice our aquifer is located in our urban setting, right? It's in downtown, it's in Marymore, it's in, you know, kind of the industrial area of Southeast Redmond. Um, and so just based on the land use, there's potential for contaminants uh, to enter our aquifer. So um, basically all of these characteristics mean that our aquifer is vulnerable con to contamination. And so because of that, the city really has a lot of protection efforts that we've put into place to make sure that our aquifer remains a safe drinking water source. Uh, we've created a critical aquifer recharge area, or CARA, um, and that is shown on the map you see here on the slide. The dark uh, blue is our CARA 1. So essentially in this area, groundwater takes five years or less to get to one of our supply wells. 
Uh, the lighter blue area is CARA 2. So that area groundwater takes 10 years or less to get to our supply well, or it's an area that has a critical recharge effect on our aquifer. So water in that area won't reach our supply well, but it helps maintain the, the quantity that we need in the aquifer, you know, that, so we're able to pump our wells. Uh, again, because you know, our, our aquifer is vulnerable, uh, we have a lot of protection efforts that we do within the CARA. Uh, we do a lot of policy review. Uh, this past year, staff has really been tracking regulations at both the state and federal level on PFAS, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a little bit. Um, in addition, we submitted comments to the Washington Department of Ecology about their water law policy 2030, um, just because some of the, the comments or the, the edits that they're making to that policy um, potentially erodes some of the flexibility that we have with our municipal, municipal water rights. Uh, we also conduct a development review within the CARA. We participate um, in the development review process. Um, any, basically, we're looking at any development within the CARA, making sure that it doesn't adversely impact our drinking water supply. Um, over the past year, we've looked at about 200 different reviews uh, through that process. Uh, we also conduct business assistant visits. Um, essentially what we're doing here is going to businesses within the CARA that uh, handle hazardous waste or have some type of land use activity that could be detrimental to our aquifer. Um, and we provide assistance with them to help them either eliminate or reduce the amount of, of hazards that they have on their site. Um, and finally, we have a groundwater monitoring program uh, where we uh, go out and sample uh, monitoring wells twice a year, once in the summer and once in the, the winter time. And the next slide is going to go into a little bit more detail about that. Uh, so this three-dimensional map you see here shows that we have approximately 100 monitoring wells throughout our CARA. Um, we sample a subset of these monitoring wells twice a year. You know, we're really looking for um, common chemicals that you'll see, and we're also looking for emerging contaminants, uh, the big one being PFAS. Uh, uh, that's obviously a, a big issue uh, right now. Um, just, uh, I'm sure you've heard about it in the news, but just as a reminder, it's in water-resistant clothing, it's in Teflon, it's in, you know, food wrappers. So it's basically ubiquitous within our environment, um, but we are monitoring some of our wells just to keep an eye on what's happening in our aquifer. Um, in addition to monitoring the chemistry, uh, twice a year we also go out to all of these monitoring wells and measure the level of the groundwater. Uh, so in fact, last week was just our winter sampling event, so uh, city staff were out at all of these wells last week uh, measuring the levels just to keep track of, of, you know, kind of a baseline of how we're doing trend-wise over, over the years. Um, and so... Uh, with that, I just want to say that this monitoring well network really provides an early warning system for our supply well so that we have an idea of what's happening in our, the, the health of our aquifer. Uh, so with that, I'm now going to turn the presentation over to Gabby, who's going to tell you how we get this groundwater out of the ground and into Redmond's homes and businesses. Thank you, Jessica. Um, I'll start with just a general overview of what it takes to get the water from the aquifer to our customers. It starts with um, pulling water out of the aquifer 
one bucket at a time. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we use a well pump um, and pump the water out uh, at varying rates at each of the sites. Uh, we treat the water with fluoride and then disinfect using chlorine. Um, we adjust the pH uh, because the raw water that comes out of the aquifer has a low pH, so we adjust that using aeration, no chemical addition to do that. And then the water spends a, a short period of time in a clear well, which is really just a basin underneath each one of the well buildings in order to get an appropriate amount of contact time with the disinfectant before it reaches the first customer in the distribution system. Not pictured on this overview is are our inner ties with uh, the Tolt um, or with Cascade. Um, but in the tan area of the map that Jessica showed you in, on the hybrid system slide, uh, that, that area of our town in the peak season in the summer when we have to supplement our production, um, we are blending both uh, water from Tolt and groundwater in order to meet the customer demand. I know everybody here loves tables, so we're going to go line by line. No, I'm just kidding. Um, sorry. The, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of information on this table. The the primary point to get across is that there's a pretty rigorous um, water quality sampling schedule that we are required to adhere to. Um, city staff uh, take these samples in accordance with our requirements and scheduling. Um, in 2023, we collected over 1,300 um, regulatory water samples out in the distribution system. And when I say those are the ones we collected, those are the ones that went to the lab. We also do a lot of monitoring in the field that doesn't require sending a sample to the lab. So this is just a, just a bit of a snapshot of what, what the staff are doing from day to day. Um, you, you'll see the graphic here that kind of has three different sections um, in, in the circle. And it's, it's a way of us describing the multiple barriers that we use to protect our drinking water from outside influence. Um, so we're talking about water, we just talked about water quality treatment, drinking water treatment. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about the distribution system and the activities that we, that we engage in in maintaining that system. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about the cross-connection control program as well. Um, some of the things on this, on this, in this table that might look familiar to you because they've been prevalent in the news are changes to the lead and copper rule, um, changes in regulations to, uh, regarding PFOS, and the unregulated contaminant monitoring rule. That is called UCMR, um, and you may have heard of that. It's an EPA uh, program that uh, has purveyors across the nation are sampling for various contaminants in order to determine what the prevalence of those contaminants might be across the nation. And that informs rulemaking process um, and the development of drinking water standards. Um, staff just completed the first required sampling event for EPA's fifth iteration of UCMR. Um, and this was, this was concluded in November. Um, we, uh, the, the samples were collected at all entry points to the distribution system and they were analyzed for 29 PFOS and lithium. Uh, there was one detection at wells one and two treatment. Uh, it was of perfluorobutane sulfonic acid, which I know everybody really loves to hear about. No, it's PFE, 
PFBS is, is the, um, the acronym for that. Um, it will trigger a subsequent sample in the, in the coming months. Um, but just to put it into perspective, the detection was 3.1 parts per trillion. The state action level for that is 345 parts per trillion. Uh, so it's, le it's less than 1% of the state action level. Uh, in the water distribution system, our staff are engaging in a number of activities that help maintain the integrity of the system and also maintain the water quality. Um, one of those ways is by supporting development. We do that by uh, being on site anytime that there is a tie-in to an existing main, whether it's a service or a new main. Um, our staff operate all the valves in the system. We don't allow contractors to do that. Um, and that's in, in order to make sure we are aware of what, what valves are being operated and ensure that they're the correct valves. Um, it's very easy to overpressurize a part of the system if the wrong valve is open. So that's one way that we can prevent against main breaks or something like that associated with improper use of our, of our valves. Staff also maintain our pressure reducing valve stations and you can think of those as the gateway from one pressure zone to another pressure zone. And by maintaining those on a regular fre frequency, there are roughly about 100 of those. Um, they're maintained, uh, they're all the rubber goods, gaskets and things like that are replaced in those once every five years at a minimum um, or sooner if, if needed. Uh, in addition, we talked a little bit about the system isolation valves. Those are just any, any valve in the system that allows us to isolate a small part, any mainline valve. Um, staff regularly go visit each of these valves. They exercise the valves to ensure functionality, ensure that they're accessible, um, and to make sure that if we do find something that is in need of repair, we can make that, we can make that repair ahead of an emergent need to use them. During main and service line repairs, um, you, you'll notice that uh, even when staff are on site, you might still see water coming out of that, that hole or out of that you know, break area. And that's because in order to maintain um, water quality, we maintain positive pressure to that break as long as possible until we're able to excavate below. Um, and that prevents contaminants from entering into the pipe during those repair activities. Uh, finally, we, we operate a, a cross-connection control program in, accord, in, in compliance with um, the state Department of Health regulations. Um, that program maintains an inventory of all backflow assemblies at businesses and homes throughout uh, the city and ensures that they're tested in accordance with the law and their use. Um, the, by doing that and conducting you know, on-site inspections and surveys, we're able to help educate the public on things that they may not be aware is a danger to them within their own building. Um, and we can also protect the integrity of the public water system as well. In the peak season, uh, we are producing about 3.3 million gallons per day uh, with our wells. And we're supplementing that uh, with uh, an additional 5.9 million gallons per day uh, from Cascade. Uh, some of the ways that we can protect the quantity of water available to us during the peak season or any other time is by optimizing our maintenance schedule. We take wells offline for maintenance outside of the peak season. The peak season is between June and September. Um, and we, we purposefully do that so we can maximize our production at the wells during the peak season. Um, we 
excuse me, staff have been working with planning, finance, fire, as well as external stakeholders to develop policy direction for dewatering regulations. Um, in December of, 20, of 2021, we received direction from the council to limit dewatering within the CARA. And interim dewatering limitations were adopted by council in September 2022, and final changes will be brought back to council, packaged with Redmond 2050 alongside planning staff in the first quarter of 2025. We're also tracking policy changes regarding PFAS and municipal water rights um, at the federal and state level. Um, we're in uh, alongside that we're assessing well four, which has historically had uh, quantity and quality issues. Um, so we want to evaluate the options that are available to us to maximize the use of that water right at well four. And finally, kind of to tag on to the conservation um, discussion, we are uh, piloting advanced metering infrastructure, which is really just a smart water meter. Uh, we, we've, we've been researching different vendors, different um, options, and we will be piloting some of, the, some of those meters uh, later this year. That will allow us um, the opportunity to read meters remotely, offer better customer service in that we can provide a, a, a quicker response if we notice that there may be a leak on the private side. And it will allow us to set alarm thresholds so we can you know, set whatever uh, usage dates, times, and limits that match our con uh, conservation efforts. All right, thanks, Gabby. Um, and just to wrap up, we wanted to touch on a few um, items related to water quality and production that we will uh, plan to bring back to council in the future. Um, starting off with the water system plan. This is a uh, functional plan update that identifies uh, water-related capital improvement projects um, for maintenance and to accommodate planned growth. Um, so this has been in the works for several years and um, we'll be making its way through the council process for review in uh, the spring. Um, also, as we know, uh, 2024 year is a budget year, so we'll be working on developing budget offers for the 25-26 uh, biennial budget, and just wanted to highlight the two offers that the work described here is going to fall within with the uh, groundwater management offer and the safe drinking water offer. Um, kind of along those lines, we have the water utility CIP. Um, one thing to call out here is um, looking for a uh, potential future change to uh, include the development of a pipe replacement program um, um, with a focus on replacing some aging uh, asbestos concrete uh, water mains. Um, temporary construction dewatering regulations, Gabby just touched on that on the previous slide, um, but just as a uh, reminder, um, looking at uh, proposed restrictions on temporary construction dewatering within the CARA, um, to bring back to council the first quarter of 2025. And then finally also, Gabby mentioned this also, but um, the um, future well four recommendations. So staff are currently um, evaluating well four and uh, trying to come up with recommendations um, that we will uh, keep council informed on and um, bring those recommendations to council when we have them. And with that, I think uh, ready for questions. Wonderful, thank you so much. Are there questions from the council? Councilmember Salahuddin. Thank you for such a thorough presentation. Um, really appreciate uh, all of the slides. And my question is around the water quality sampling slide um, and uh, a few 
questions that might be might be related. Um, one of them is, uh, you know, around that frequency of water quality sampling. Is that um, for each of these different um, samples? Is that set? Uh, and is it specific for each of them? Like, why nine years versus ten years? Uh, and then, um, what is your process if you do find irregularities? And uh, and then you mentioned, you know, three parts per trillion. Um, if it's repeated uh, and you find it again, what, what's the process that you would take um, for that sample? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, the, the first part of your question uh, on, the, on the varying timeframes, um, Redmond has historically not had detections or had, you know, they've been, they have been approved by the Department of Health for a waiver, and that's why we're on that extended period. The waiver can be taken back um, if we were to, you know, to start to see those kinds of contaminants in our system. Um, they would probably increase our frequency for monitoring. Um, and then in addition, any any detection that we have, it really depends on the contaminant and the level. So there are different requirements for um, subsequent testing, monitoring, and reporting, um, and they're all kind of they they're all a little bit different depending on the contaminant. Thank you, uh, Council Vice President Forsyth. Thank you, uh, thank you. That was one of my questions as well. So I appreciate hearing the answer on that one. Um, Two questions. I want to follow up on that. Are we budgeting for the potential of having to um, increase the frequency of the testing? Uh, specifically for uh, the PFOS uh, state action levels and the monitoring that we're doing for UCMR, um, that we did budget extra assuming that we would have increased monitoring if we had a detection. So the plan was this year um, with this budget, uh, the plan was that we would Ha we planned for having to resample every site at the maximum frequency required by Department of Health. Okay, thank you. And then um, same, similar, same question as earlier in the Cascade presentation about protecting our water source from um, outside interests. Um, do we currently have a policy in place, and, and forgive me for not knowing this one, um, or do is this something we need to look at so that our water can't be basically taken out from under us? Uh, I don't believe we, Chris, I don't know if you have an answer to that one, but I don't believe we have a, a policy in place for that. Uh, council member, that's something that we can get back to you uh, with the information on. Okay. And if we do not, I would love to see us discuss that um, as part of 2050 or sooner, whatever whatever works for the schedule. But I think it's very critical for us to to set a policy like that in place. Thank you. Councilmember Nueva Camina. <laughs> Thank you for all of the work that went into it. Um, being a, a downtown resident and, of course, seeing all the great growth that we've had, um, you know, I know that when, whenever we put in a new building, and especially when we're then tapping into underground parking, um, because we do deal with such uh, a shallow groundwater um, what what do we have in place that's keeping an eye on that? Like one, like, hey, whoops, did we go too far? Um, two, 
um, underground parking is sends, tends to have higher temperatures. How is that impacting the groundwater, if at all? Um, and kind of what do we have in place to, to keep an eye on this? Because it is such a precious resource for, for Redmond. That is a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're part of the development review process. So when developments come in within the CARA, uh, staff review those. And if they do temporary construction dewatering uh, because of the depth of their parking garage, it has an uh, extra step to that review process. Um, they have to, the project itself has to do monitoring. They have to provide reports to show that they're not going to have a detrimental impact onto our aquifer. Um, and so through that development review process, we, that's how we're really keeping an eye on that. Um, when they're dewatering, um, the project is responsible for monitoring the groundwater level around the site. They're responsible for taking any water quality samples, um, if there's a, you know, a potential plume, a contaminant plume in the area. Um, and so we have our TCD operating policy that they have to follow. Um, and as both Gabby and er Ernie mentioned, um, we are working towards eliminating uh, dewatering within the CARA uh, for underground stories, underground parking. Um, we're working through the Redmond 2050 process to um, work with building heights and, and parking uh, ratio reduction uh, so that we can basically move parking structures from underground to above ground. Follow-up question for that is um, once it's been done, because of course there's a lot of settling that happens from the time that we're constructing to we're now five years down the road, both the building and the land as well. Both are dynamic within those first few years. Do we have something that, that comes back around and says, hey, how really is your your, your, your lowest level parking, how's that really happening? Or testing the soil around that to see if there's any anything that's seeping out. Maybe that, that waterproofing membrane wasn't as good as what we thought. That again is a very good question. Um, we've had several parking garages actually that have had some leakage issues in them. And that's another reason why we're working towards, you know, really eliminating underground parking um, in such a, you know, with groundwater that's so shallow. Um, yeah, that's a it's an issue, an active issue right now. Thank you. Yeah. Councilmember Stewart. Thank you so much. There are sometimes um, presentations at council that you, you have to bookmark your notes because they have the answers to all of the citizen questions around, and resident questions rather, um, around especially PFAS and some of these hot topic issues. And we know that water quality um, and water assurance is so important to the residents. So uh, these are notes I'm going to come back to a lot. Um, so I have a question on the uh, hybrid water system. Does do we operate it both ways? So is there, are there periods of time when water from our city wells is maybe going up the hill to Grasslawn, or is it mostly water coming in from the Cascade side down into the, other, the, the eastern part of town? Um, does it go both ways? That's an excellent question. Um, no, it doesn't. And the reason for that is elevation. So um, we can take water from Rose Hill um, down into downtown area. We can't, we can't push water back the other direction. Um, so if you think about the, the way that that map kind of looked, that um, Overlake, um, uh, Rose Hill, those are all told. Um, downtown, that can be blended. It's primarily throughout the winter it's all groundwater unless we're doing maintenance and taking a well offline and supplementing that in the winter. Um, 
But for the most part, um, in answer to your question, no, we can't move it the other direction. Um, we can take water into the downtown area though. Okay, thank you. And given that, um, as you said, over you you spoke about Overlake, and that's one of the neighborhoods we're going to be adding a lot of density. Um, it was great to hear tonight. You know, 200 development reviews—is that what you said last year? So, we, um, our friends on the development team, we get to hear from them a lot. We get to work in partnership with a lot. So, Chris, I want to thank you for bringing your team out tonight to share in conversation. It was really great to hear from you all and how you're integr so integrated in that process too. So, thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Are there any other questions? Well, thank you, um, Council Members, for, for your questions. Uh, a lot of my questions were answered here and, and really appreciate uh, the presentation and the work that you all are doing. Uh, honestly, in terms of the things that we are accountable to our public to do, one of the very most basic is protecting our water supply and making sure that people have access. So it's been great to hear from you all tonight as well as the, the first presentation and um, just want to have that appreciation. Um, I had also a quick question following up on some of the ones around the testing, um, actually, well, two parts, uh, is first is on the ones that, that we test only every nine years, um, do, do we have any concerns if something were to happen in those nine years that we, we wouldn't know, or do we pick up on if there were to be some sort of contamination or issue around asbestos or herbicides in a particular area, would we be picking up on those in the interim time with other testing? Yeah, I'll speak a little bit for Jessica here. Uh, part of, part, I mean, part of the benefit of having a monitoring network is that there are certain things that we're going to find out about ahead of time because of our regular testing in the monitoring network. But there, there are other things that, unless there is a reason, much like emerging contaminants, you don't know what the what the concentration or the prevalence is until you do that initial sampling. Um, one of the things that we have to do in our role is um, constantly keep track of what the most up-to-date testing methods are and what is what the best practices are for mitigating any risk. Um, so I don't know if that fully answers your question, but there are some things that we would have an indication of and some things that we wouldn't. Yeah, thank you. Um, and then, uh, you know, one topic that's been very uh, kind of coming up for a lot in the community and, and regionally has been around 6PPDQ. Um, and I know, I think we were doing a, a pilot uh, with street sweeping. Uh, so curious to hear how that's going and anything that we're learning about, about that particular contaminant in our water system. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So the 6PPDQ right now, the big issue is with, with surface water because it is toxic to coho salmon. And so you're, you're correct, we're doing a pilot study within the Tosh Creek watershed where we're increasing street sweeping and sampling Tosh Creek uh, for 6PPDQ. Um, unfortunately, because this is such a cutting edge new chemical, it's taking about four to five months to get the, the data back from the lab. So we're pretty far behind in that. But what we, what we can say that we've seen is that uh, we sample both stormwater events when it's raining, so you're getting runoff from the street, and we sample base flow events where it's basically groundwater feeding the creek. 6PPDQ um, is much lower when it's just the groundwater. So we can definitely say that the source is coming from the roads, which, I mean, that's pretty obvious, but still it's nice to have that piece of data. Um, but we will be coming back to council with that to present once we have the full data set of the results of that. Great. Looking forward to that. Yeah. And with that... Unless there are any other questions. Oh, one more from Mr. Stanger. Thank you. I just wanted to add for the record that uh, Gabby Wolf is our water quality supervisor. 
um, in the introductions. I think it was missed. So, so that you're just not just a person talking about it. You're our you're our water quality supervisor, subject matter expert. So, but. Thank you. Thank you for, for noting that, and thank you for being here tonight and, and for the work that you do. Really appreciate it. Um, if there are no other questions or comments, then um, we will close out this item and say thank you to, to everyone for covering these really critical topics around our, our water, um, both from outside our community and right underneath where we are right now. Um, and I think uh, because this is, has, we have another media item after that, we are going now to um, take a quick recess for five minutes and we'll resume at 8.39. Thank you.
I think we have everyone, so when we're ready, we can resume. Great. Well, welcome back. Um, we are back to our study session of the Redmond City Council on February 13, 2024. The next item on the agenda is the Redmond 2050 Planning Commission recommendation for housing and overlake. Presenting this item is Carol Helen, Director of Planning and Community Development. Thank you, Councilmember Kritzer, and good evening, Mayor and Council Members. Uh, I'm glad to be here this evening. Uh, tonight, as part of Redmond 2050, we're here to discuss the Planning Commission's recommendation for housing policies and regulations. Staff have prepared a presentation content that focuses on the questions that you asked during the uh, council member meeting last week. And uh, staff, stakeholders, and planning commissioners have dedicated a significant amount of time to create these recommendations for your review. Before staff presents, I'm going to introduce Sherry Nichols, our Planning Commission Chair, uh, for her to uh, have a few words. Chair Nichols will share her perspective on the deliberations and the recommendation of the Planning Commission. Sherry. Thank you, Director Helen. Good evening. Um, let's just say this is focused on the uh, housing regulations. Uh, what drove our uh, thinking around the housing regulations were the direction from the housing action plan and the housing element and the direction from the council and from the countywide planning policies of the dire need for affordable housing. Uh, what we saw in the data was that the one of the largest needs for affordable housing was at the 50% AMI range. So uh, that was what drove our focus to try to push the uh, inclusionary zoning level down to 50% AMI. Uh, we think that uh, you know, of the tools available for affordable housing, inclusionary zoning is appropriate for that level. That's probably as low as we can push it. Um, you know, things like fee and lieu are more appropriate for lower levels of affordability. Uh, such as what we discussed earlier tonight. Uh, we did uh, do some work to uh, strengthen the criteria for use for fee and lieu. Um, 
So we thought that's where the need is greatest. Uh, Redmond has already done a lot of work around affordable housing at the 80% AMI level. Um, and so we wanted to extend that. Uh, so uh, we put in some stuff to put in some step down provisions to try to sort of prime the pump to get some, you know, particularly in the current economy, to try to make it easier for uh, some early adopters, developers to try to uh, to get this started, to let them step down, not have to do the whole thing all at once, but uh, we still, we have an objective of getting to 50%. Um, we discussed MFTE, but MFTE is outside our purview. It's in the municipal code, but we recognize that it's another tool and an important tool for housing affordability. Um, you know, we heard a lot of uh, public input from developers that this is totally infeasible, which I expected. Um, you know, we are asking more from developers, so I expected to hear that they couldn't do it. Um, but we also heard of the tremendous need for it. And um, the direction that we've heard from the community, from the council, from the county is that this is where we're going. And if we're ever gonna get there, the market's not gonna get us there. So this is the tool that we thought was the best way to approach. Um, you will notice in your packet that there are a couple of uh, minority reports from other commissioners. Uh, we always allow for commissioners who, you know, we don't operate by consensus, we take a vote, and any commissioner that uh, dissents from the vote or wants to expand on the vote can submit a minority report, and so a couple of commissioners did. Um, you know, there, was, there is a concern that pushing affordability down to this level will make it impossible for housing to be built. And, you know, that's the that is a risk. None of us have a crystal ball. But we thought that no matter what we did, developers were going to tell us they couldn't build it. So we need this built, and the market's not going to build it for us. So that's, that was the Planning Commission's thinking and approach. And with that, I will hand it over to Ian Lefcourt. Thank you, Chair Nichols. Hello, my name is Ian Lefcourt, Senior Planner in Long Range Planning, and I am joined by Senior Planner Mike Stenger from ARCH, who is our housing subject matter expert. As a reminder, ARCH is funded by all of the member jurisdictions, so while the organization has a different name, we like to think of them as extended family. We recognize that council at the previous meeting brought up more topics than what is reflected in just this presentation, but we did find these three major thematic items, and so we focused our presentation on that. If we have time at our follow-up meeting, we can touch on some of the odds and ends, other housing uh, pieces that were brought up. But for tonight, we'll talk about fee and lieu. We'll talk about the process and substance related to the development of our financial models, which informed our policy recommendations and the rationale for the inclusionary zoning changes to 50% AMI. I will do my best not to repeat what Chair Nichols already provided. The important thing about fee and looter member is that it is one type of alternative compliance. 
Now, Redmond Zoning Code 2120 requires for most projects of 10 units or more in the city that some amount of affordable housing must be provided. It is a requirement. RZC 2120 also has a uh, component of alternative compliance. And this is an opportunity for flexibility. It's tools in the toolbox for the city. There's an opportunity to provide affordable housing units off-site. That's one option. A second option is fee and lieu payment. And a third option in the existing code is other. There's kind of an opportunity for the city to be open-minded and receive proposals and evaluate them. Now, with the existing code, we have a strong regulatory preference for on-site affordable housing. By that, we mean it's mixed in with the market rate units in the overall development. Now, there, there's a lot of value there. Um, it, it provides geographic equity because it's mixing across the entire city instead of concentrating the low-income households in one area. There's social equity between bringing all these people together. There's amenity equity by keeping people, uh, giving people opportunities to live closer to transit, healthcare, employment, uh, recreation, all of these pieces. So the code has a strong preference for that on-site, but we do offer those alternative methods. And the fee and lieu has a limited role today and historically. Because of that strong preference, there is a burden of proof on proposals to go with alternative compliance. Our code says that proposals must demonstrate that any alternative achieves a result equal to or better than providing affordable housing on-site. Um, one of the reasons why the Planning Commission felt the need to kind of bolster this, to make sure that we added more language emphasizing that priority and adding specifics on how it would be evaluated is because some of those concerns you see listed there. There's the geographic equity I mentioned, the time value of money. This was a big topic. The moment a dollar is sitting and it's not going to a project, it is losing value. The purchasing power decreases even if the number stays the same. And related to that is that lag in construction of affordable housing. One of the beautiful parts of the mandatory inclusionary zoning is that the affordable units go up with the market rate units. And a nuance of that is the availability of land. It's not just finding an affordable housing uh, effort that we could invest the money into, but it's the siting of it. The city of Redmond is largely built out. There's not a lot of vacant land that we could purchase at reasonable costs. So that availability of land is another reason that lag in construction uh, was a concern for our PC. The recommended amendments, bolstering that preference for on-site affordability. The language very explicitly gets even stronger. Um, it states that fee and lieu requests may only be approved if there is an imminent and viable affordable housing uh, effort. So think of our Together Center. Two of the three fee and lieus we've accepted as a city were developments that had the opportunity to get that money right over to the Together Center. So there was a minimal delay. Uh, that third point is uh, a point that our commission really wanted to emphasize as well, is that now the fee and lieu must get better affordable outcomes. It can't just be equal to, it has to be better. And we've measured that as 10% in the code. Um, some of the factors 
which we've defined to consider when evaluating the better outcomes are largely drawn upon the exercises we did with ARCH for our previous fee in lieu analyses. So it's historically consistent and we believe it's uh, in practice robust. Things include the length of time it takes to produce the affordable units, the, the location of the units and nearby amenities, uh, the, qu the quantity of affordable units, the affordability levels, uh, satisfying other community needs. So uh, components there would be uh, housing that perhaps is more universally designed, uh, perhaps first floor units that are more accessible, uh, units that perhaps have a greater number of bedrooms to accommodate households with more members, uh, components like that. And then there's also this uh, flexibility for other components as defined by a director. But the overall goal is that our fee and lieu is a tool in the toolbox, but it should be only rarely used in special circumstances. And the financial modeling. We will walk through the collaborative and multi-year modeling. Um, while the efforts began in middle of 2022, the direction for this started well before that with our housing action plan. Action 1.3 explicitly says, we're gonna focus on this, review it. And it's important to recognize this was not because of any concern with the existing inclusionary zoning. It was regionally recognized, it was, it was working uh, fine. We just wanted to see if there was opportunities to get uh, better outcomes for our community. We uh, had a scope of work that had our Community Attributes Inc. consultants working on our Housing Action Plan implementation grant efforts to review the inclusionary zoning and our multifamily tax exemption program. Those efforts substantively wrapped up in about June of 2023. At that point, because so much had changed in our economic conditions, the lending rates, the cost of building, our stakeholders, particularly our for-profit developers, requested further engagement to review and revise the model even further. So we continued to work through uh, the summer to keep working at it. We tried to find consensus for, if not the specific numbers, then a consensus that they were reasonable. And we did. Our stakeholders did agree that we eventually got to a point where all of the inputs and outputs were plausible, the numbers themselves. The uh, stakeholders included nonprofit developers, for-profit developers, comparative jurisdictions, other entities, entities like advocacy groups, uh, FutureWise reviewed our model uh, as one example. Um, and then as we moved through that piece, we got to the third quarter of 2023. And that's when these three different prongs all started merging. So we had the CAI work for us, we also had uh, Eco Northwest consulting work focused on the overlake incentives analysis. And we also had BAE consultants working with Arch. All of these different consultants on all of these different analyses had done market data pulls. They had done developer interviews. And so we were able to synthesize all of these pieces of information together. And what was the result? Very similar inputs and outputs. That was very useful for our confidence in going forward with these numbers because it showed that there was a triangulation and a high amount of accuracy. If all these different methods, numbers, and models created that same outcome. Uh, 
The substance of the models is very similar to what developers would use to analyze uh, potential development opportunities. The two main levers that we used for the CAI work were the quantity of affordable units and the level of affordability for the affordable units. And so the user has the opportunity to input those pieces and see the outcome of what the financial feasibility would be for those uh, scenarios. And we want to emphasize that what to do with those numbers is the purview of the policymakers. We're here to provide those numbers. And so some of the inputs are land value, the type of structure, so that could be things from townhomes all the way up to towers. Uh, the geographic area, Overlake has different economic considerations than, say, Education Hill. Um, some of the outputs are IRR, internal rate of return, yield on cost, and benefit ratio. And we'll discuss those on the next slide. IRR is typically used for relatively short-term short holding patterns with a terminal sale. So we think of it as the annual rate of growth that an investment generates over a certain amount of time. So it'd be like if I invested $10 into a lemonade stand, I held it for 33 months, and then I sold it, we would backtrack the average annual, um, we would average out an annual rate of return for whatever I sold that lemonade stand for. The yield on cost is a metric more focused on the actual performance of the property. It's the rent income, or sorry, it is the net income generated as a percentage of the total investment cost once the project has stabilized. So that's when it starts, all of the initial costs are paid off, and we can see the full occupancy rates are starting to return. This is one of the main metrics used to analyze rental developments. And then finally, our third output that we looked at is our benefit ratio. And this is a little bit different than the other two. It is a per housing unit measurement of the economic value added to development divided by added economic cost to development. And importantly, this is a very useful tool for examining changes because it compares the change to the status quo. So it helps provide a measure of whether we're giving more to the development relative to how much we're asking from development. And here to discuss uh, that piece more, Mike Stanger. Thank you. Um, really happy to be with you. Uh, you probably don't need me to repeat this, but um, but I'd like to anyways. Uh, Redmond is uh, the leader on the east side in creating affordable housing through land use and tax incentives. Um, you may not know that uh, Arch administers about two, a little over 2,000 units from these programs, land use and tax incentives, the affordable at or below 80 AMI. And Redmond created 44% of those in the last 30 years. And since 2011, Redmond's created more than all the other Arch member communities combined through those uh, two incentive programs. The way that uh, the city was able to do that was by understanding the value that the city was creating through uh, zoning changes that would increase the value of the land 
and the value of tax incentives, the MFTE program, and so forth, and um, determining how much affordability you could get by, in effect, clawing back some of that value for the public benefit. And so that's the um, that's essentially the the uh, analysis that we have been doing for the city. Our staff have been doing for the city for 30 years, uh, and we did again for this time around because again with this up zone you're creating more value for uh, landowners and developers and uh, the question then that we set out was if the city's increasing development capacity and abates property taxes uh, that creates more value how much affordable additional affordable housing could that value support so um, in this kind of conceptual diagram here is meant to show the way that we stack up the values created for the landowner developer. The yellow part of the bar is from the development capacity by uh, allowing more units. It's as if the way we measure that value is by taking the value of the land and imagining that the property owner or developer would have to go out and buy that much more land in order to create those units if it weren't being upzoned. The blue bar is the value of the tax exemption over eight or 12 years. And then the green bar in the middle or screen section would be uh, value from reducing the cost of parking um, construction. It could be impact fee waivers. It could be uh, by reducing uh, parking construction, you can build more units in there. But I, I want to point out that we actually didn't calculate or try to um, uh, target or capture any of that value. For this analysis, we just used the uh, development capacity and the uh, MFT. And then we, the, the bar on the right would be the value of the public, meaning the affordable housing, uh, which is measured by the gap between market rents and affordable rents. In other words, um, that's the income that the owner foregoes by having those affordable units. So, next please. And this shows uh, three of the scenarios that we looked at. Uh, so on the left-hand side is, uh, illustrates the um, Planning Commission's recommendation. So the value created um, through the upzoning and so forth um, uh, eventually increases value to the owner in the amount of $1.50 for every dollar that is captured for affordable housing. That's where we get the ratio of 1.5 to 1. Um, we like to see this value, this ratio, be at least 1.2 to 1 uh, so that we feel comfortable that um, that um, you know there's some wiggle room there that for there's some uncertainty that can um, we can feel confident that the developer is coming out ahead if that ratio is 1.2 or greater we try not to recommend anything greater than 2.0 so 1.5 is pretty ideal from that standpoint. 
We tried pushing the percentage for up to 15% at 50 AMI and found that the ratio dropped to 1.1. So that's below uh, our th ordinary threshold and we wouldn't feel as comfortable recommending that. Um, on the other hand, if you did 15% at 60 AMI, you get pretty much the same results as you do for 12 and a half at 50. But um, going back to um, what our chairwoman said, the, I think the PC was um, attracted by the, um, the opportunity to get that deeper affordability and that's where their recommendation landed. I think that pretty well captures my summary. Thank you. Uh, so we'll have more rationale for our IZ changes to 50% AMI specifically, um, but one of the key components of this is it's not a dream, it's achievable. Uh, everybody who was involved in this, the for-profit developers, the non-profit developers, city staff, our stakeholders, our community members, everyone wants housing to be built. And our modeling shows that the 50% AMI can work in a supportive market. Critically, when we looked at the new development capacity with all of those benefits and the new proposed 12.5% at 50% AMI, the yield on cost, so remember that metric that is used for evaluating projects or developments, it's about equal to what the status quo yield on cost is for developing an overlake. So the current development capacity with the current IZ requirements is about equal to what the IZ requirements would be under these amendments with the new development capacity. Why is that important? Because whenever the economic conditions of the greater United States improve and are a little bit more favorable to growth, it would come back online about the same time. So whenever the economy gets better, there's be no delay in when the housing would start being constructed again. Uh, and one other piece on this slide is that starting in the middle of 2017, Marymore received a substantive update to its regulations. And one piece of that was the MFTE, which has 50% AMI units as part of its option. And we have seen many housing units get developed in Marymore with that MFTE. So we know that it's viable in our city. We received almost a thousand market rate units and almost a hundred affordable units because of uh, that development opportunity. We've touched on King County, countywide planning policies a lot, so I won't belabor this slide, but the, the high level is our housing element directs us to look at 50% AMI. King County CPPs look, want us to look at 50% AMI. Our Redmond 2050 themes of equity and inclusion guide us to look at 50% AMI. And as Chair Nichols and as Mike both mentioned, 50% is about as deep of affordability as we could go with inclusionary zoning. And this is valuable because inclusionary zoning is a low cost for the city tool to help get those units online. We're using a step-down approach to help with the transition from the current regulations to the proposed 12.5 at 50% AMI. Uh, we believe that this will uh, help incentivize first comers to get in through the gate and get those developments going. We also think that it helps provide a more gentle, uh, graceful transition 
to this new amount, so it helps developers get used to what's coming. In addition, outside of the, the amendments in this specific package, the comp plan is exploring opportunities of helping developments that are in the pipeline go forward with the existing regulations that they're under. So we're hoping to smooth this out as much as possible for our developers. You know, what are our reactions? How are we feeling? Thank you very much for the presentation. Uh, I'll open it up to questions from the council. And I'll say thank you, Commissioner Nichols, for, for joining us tonight. And, and huge thanks to the whole Planning Commission for the deep work. I know it's been many months, maybe year, that you've been working on this and taking the, the public input on it. So it's great to get your recommendations. Councilmember Salahuddin. Yeah, thank you so much for the presentation and thank you so much, uh, Commissioner Nichols, for being here. Uh, my question is um, a little bit around what you mentioned um, when, you, uh, when you spoke earlier and then um, through, throughout the presentation, um, just looking at, you know, housing is something that we all want and we, we want affordable housing um, across the board. Uh, I think it's really important to look at how we get there and um, really appreciate the Planning Commission's work um, to be able to get us, uh, you know, this proposal and all of the staff as well. I apologize if, you know, during the Planning Commission process, this has definitely been discussed um, with developers and seeing, and, and we, we received some emails, um, folks have reached out and said that development might not happen on their side because of, um, you know, these considerations. Just want to get sort of a rationale on how we got to this value in accordance with thinking that we will be able to move forward with development and developer, developers will develop because worst case scenario, we have no housing that's being built. And I, I want to make sure that we're avoiding that. And so if you have some insight on that, would love to, um, as, as the new kid, would love to get some information. And I'd like to just um, amplify something that, I, that the Chair Nichols said uh, real quickly. And that's some of the things we are focusing on in addition to just the proposals that's before you. So we're recalibrating um, inclusionary zoning and MFTE, but that's just one of the facets of the proposal. And um, I know one of the slides in your packet materials talks, it's like slide 20, it was a kind of a resource slide at the end of the slide deck that talks about all the different things that need to happen in order for housing to be developed. One of the things that you discussed at your special meeting earlier this evening was direct assistance that comes in the form of land and low-income housing tax credits and other things like that. Um, land use and tax incentives have been very effective over time, and so we're trying to make sure that those are calibrated effectively. We also understand that market rate development also needs to continue, so those, there's a variety of middle housing options. But to your point of what if development doesn't happen, there are several safety valves in this proposal that are included, one being the step-down that was uh, discussed that one will uh, basically allow for developers that come in after the effective date of the ordinance to take advantage of a gradual step down to the 50% AMI. What that does for us is as units come available under this stepping down provision from 80 to 70 to 60 to 50, is it allows us to track um, production and to see if production is lagging or if we see warning signs 
that we can essentially make micro adjustments or bring that back to the council. So with anything we do, there will be a level of adaptation and monitoring attached to it. And then the other thing is we do have many pipeline developments. And there are, there's always uncertainty when you make code changes. Um, I've been in land use for over 30 years. Code changes prompt appeals. They prompt community concerns because design changes and they see a taller building where they didn't think taller buildings could go. That's kind of the cycle of how land use code amendments and zoning code amendments occur. And in order to ameliorate some of that potential impact, there is a uh, vesting provision that allows developments that are currently in the pipeline to remain in the pipeline under the current regulations, which are 80% AMI at 10% 10 at 80% AMI, um, as so long as they file a building permit before the end of 2026. That's an incredibly generous vesting provision that allows kind of the continuation of development under the existing standards. And uh, would love to, yeah, yeah I, I just have a follow-up to that one point, but um, would love to hear from you, Commissioner Nichols. Uh, yeah, so is, is, or is there a worry that, worry, uh, not the right word, is there a chance that, uh, you know, before the end of 2026, developers will just go go forward with, all, you know, submitting all of their projects before then, and then we won't have this affordable housing that we're stipulating, we're trying to get to under these stipulations. You know, um, and wor worry is not the right word. I, I, I want housing. That's we, yeah, we want housing, so we really want to prompt housing to occur any way that it can, but we do think that that will help the market stabilize uh, because of the interest rate concerns right now. Um, I don't think we'll necessar necessarily see a rush to the permit counter, uh, but I am also not, um, a, that opportunity is not completely without merit, so. Thank you. I just want to say from the Planning Commission's point of view, one of the things we kept in mind is this is Redmond 2050, not Redmond 2025. <laughs> Interest rates change. I mean, interest rates are high right now. When I bought my first house, my first mortgage was at 9%. I do. You know? They don't stay the same. You know, I understand that developers are struggling right now, and there are a lot of, I've learned more about the development process than I ever expected to, to learn, but learn more about what yield on cost is and how the development process works. And, you know, part of what's going on with their problems with the yield on costs is it's taking longer to get to the permanent loan as opposed to the construction loan because it has to get to 80% and, and all that. But, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of moving factors that make it difficult for them right now, and I appreciate that. And I fully expected to hear that they couldn't build. I'm sure that in 1993, when Redmond implemented inclusion, mandatory inclusionary zoning, they said the same thing. And we've built more affordable housing than any other city on the, on the east side because we're one of the few that have mandatory inclusionary zoning. If we don't ask them, if we don't make them do it, the market's not going to do it for us because we have 
a trillion dollar company with 50,000 jobs in our city. And so the demand for housing is never going to be met by building. You know, I had a developer tell me, well, you know, the best rent control is a 10% vacancy rate. We can't create a 10% vacancy rate. We could never build enough for a 10% vacancy rate. So. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Other questions? Councilmember Stewart. I'm getting to the point on, on these housing ones in particular where I don't have a lot of questions left, and that's a good sign, right? Because we've been, you know, they're pretty baked at this point. Um, and, and by that, I mean the work has been invested. And Ian, I just wanted to say, um, hearing you describe how all of those contracts that this body <laughs> approved every single one of as they were going through, um, and when they all came to coalesce, like hearing that, that is, um, and that helped inform a really, uh, as you said, triangulated decision, but to, to build confidence, that speaks volumes um, to the recommendations that are baked in. So I really do appreciate that and appreciate um, where we are at this point, just to the earlier conversation um, and very much empathizing with what it's like to be a new council member and to, to catch up. Earlier tonight, we heard from Director Cochran um, that we're gonna be, you know, continuing to include uh, a financial tool in our next budget, which is that we are going to um, account for a certain percentage of our sales tax driven by development um, to be basically ongoing revenue. That speaks to me that these revenues are healthy. And um, you know, on that earlier conversation of, of things are, in the next couple of years, things are, we're expecting to be healthy. So um, I appreciate also Chair Nichols addressing both the long and the short, you know, and, and keeping us focused on the long. So I am running low on questions. I don't have a question, just gratitude tonight um, on these topics that you covered. So thank you so much. Thank you. Other questions? Councilmember Nueva Camina. The gang's all back, and I am so ridiculously proud of not only the staff, the commission, our city. Um, I, I hear things like Redmond is leading the way in this, and I, I get to be so proud. Um, I think about how many creative folks that we have that participate in Redmond, whether they work here, they live here, they recreate here. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that we also have a, a level of, um, that we have some analytical folks as well that, that we're taking a look at numbers, that we're saying, hey, how can this be done? Um, that we remind ourselves that we're not talking about 2025, we're talking about 2050. If we take a look at the market, and I, I brought this up at commission one time, uh, if we take a look at the market, then we, we know that it's actually going off of S&P 500. At any point, we take a slice, it's growing on average of 9%, even taking into consideration two years ago when we had a 22% dip. Then we're gonna flip it and we're gonna offset it later. So I'm grateful that we're looking at all of these things and that sustainability is one of our values here in Redmond, that we're striving to have sustainability in all ways, including in our communities. Now, a while back, I had seen some research done out of uh, Chinatown International District, and um, it was said, and I believe that this was probably 2018 when this research was done, so it is dated, but a dollar would turn over in that, in that community seven times before it left. Now, I love money. I love talking about money. So 
I'm thinking, well, if that isn't sustainability, that I don't know what is. And I started looking at, well, how is it that the community is built such that the dollar can turn over like that? Now, I'm, I'm also well aware that we, we have different factors and we can't recreate that. And seven times is a bit ambitious. But then it has me question, if we are creating a sustainable community such that everyone has a place to belong in Redmond, how many times can a dollar turn over in Redmond? And that really excites me, and I don't, I don't think that we, we have that. But the question that I do have um, is, uh, is there some place that we could find out what the cost would be or the savings would be um, to have a more sustainable community to where if we have at 50%, we can have you know, our, our restaurant workers, our, our, what we've been referring to as workforce, do we have something to, to where it would appease our analytical minds, mine as well, um, to, to take a look at what, what would that cost savings be and how sustainable could our economy and community be? I don't know if I have the research available uh, to answer that right now. I would like to follow up with you on an email to get further precision and make sure I can get an answer for you in advance of the next meeting. Great. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Angie. Great. Uh, great question. Thank you. Uh, other questions from the council? Okay. I will then jump in with uh, a few of my uh, questions here. And, and first of all, just say thank you again. Um, and uh, since we're reminiscing about planning commission, I think it was about six years ago that we had seen, or maybe more, seven years ago, we had seen King County had done their initial assessment of the need um, for housing uh, across King County at different affordability levels. And I remember them coming to the planning commission when I was on it with Commissioner Nichols, um, and they were showing us the amount of below 50% AMI housing that was needed in our area. And I remember asking the question, so our inclusionary zoning is at 80%. Uh, how is it that we're going to create that 50%? And so it, it's great to be able to see that uh, the discussion at that time, you know, led to now, many, many years of work of saying, yeah, let's let's take a look at our inclusionary zoning and, and especially asking how often do we update this, right? It, it has been 30 years that we've been at the same level. So I think it's worth us taking a good look. Um, one question that, that I do have about it um, is, or I have two questions. One is um, that I've heard uh, as some feedback is that in order to make it pencil out, um, that developers may have to raise the market rent housing rates up higher. Um, and so I guess I'm curious to hear how the Planning Commission discussed that as well as what we considered in terms of options to make sure that we don't see kind of all the rest of the units in um, housing since we're already seeing rents go up, um, go up even higher. Rents are set by the market. They can't raise it above what the market will bear and they set it at what the market will bear. So... If they don't set it what the market will bear, they're leaving money on the table, which they don't like to do. They can't raise it just because they're not making money somewhere else. They can only raise it what the market will bear. And most of the corporate uh, landlords these days are using AI software to set their rents anyway. I, I would add to that. I mean, Commissioner Nichols is right. 
the the risk isn't that landlords will raise rent beyond what the market will bear because they can't. The risk is that they won't do a future deal, right? Because they don't think it will pencil, and that's the risk that Carol identified, and, and Carol also identified all the mitigations that are part of this. So I think that's I think that's where to focus the attention is on what what's happening with housing production. Great. Thank you very much. I, I think that's that's really helpful, and I, and I know that we all are concerned about making sure that there's the housing production so that we get these units as well, and that also kind of across the boards so that we're making sure that we, we keep affordability in our community. So, and thank you, Commissioner Nichols, for that that really helpful point because I think it's one that's kind of out there in the community. So I just wanted to surface that. Um, the other one is just I was curious to hear a little bit more. I was reading through some of the materials on how you discuss different options for the um, thresholds for moving from uh, on the kind of uh, four-step process of the thresholds um, of doing it by units versus um, time-bound. Um, could you speak a little bit more to that discussion, either Commissioner Nichols or, or planning staff, um, since I, I've gotten some questions about why we don't do more of a year one, year two, year, year three, et cetera. I think fundamentally, and Commissioner Nichols, you can add to this, but um, it was about not wanting to try to time the market. You know, how long is it going to be before a 70% unit is financially feasible? Much better to let the market adjust on its own time. And we don't know what's going to happen to interest rates. We don't know what's going to happen to construction costs. So just make it unit-based. Great. And, and you mentioned, uh, Director Helland, that... Um, should we get in uh, to, uh, we should uh, make a change and then we don't see enough housing being produced, we can reevaluate. Can you speak a little bit more to what that, that looks like? Well, sure. We have a responsibility under the state and the county requirements to monitor the amount of housing that gets produced. So we do that on an annual basis. Um, and at what levels of, you know, what amount of that is produced at all the various different AMI levels. If we see that housing isn't getting produced at a pace at which we were potentially anticipating, all things being equal, the market may, is obviously going to affect that. So if we're getting housing under the old regulations for a period of time, that may be enough of a transition to the new regulations. But you do, we do have the option to come in and, for instance, allow more units at a certain level of um, affordability before we go to the next lower level of affordability. What we can't easily adjust is the target, the location that we're trying to aim at uh, 50%, because, um, or the percentage, because if we don't do that now, we can't ever get there without another rezone that would provide more benefit. So we have to really set the destination now, but we can adjust if we think that that destination is coming too quickly or is impeding progress so that we can adapt to that. Great, thank you. Are there other questions from the council? I'm not seeing any. Uh, I do have one more. If it's, uh, did you have something to say, Mr. Churchill? Well, I have a question for the council when the questions are completed, just about where we go from here. 
It sounds good. Okay, last question. Um, since it, going back to Fee and Lou, which was the, the earlier topic, I, I did want to cover this just um, because I have also heard a lot of feedback on this. And um, just curious, I, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, the discussions that, that you all had, and, and that we are actually being pretty specific about that we're trying to incentivize um, people building that the housing within each new housing unit instead of using Fee and Lou. But I am curious, because there are other cities that have used Fee and Lou to great effect, um, how if we evaluated if they're kind of looking at other cities that have used that model and um, you know any benefits we might be leaving off the table by, uh, by kind of going the, the policy direction that, that we're choosing. I also got the feedback about, in particular, Seattle using Fee and Lou instead of uh, in, instead of inclusionary zoning. But my understanding is Seattle doesn't even require fee and lieu to actually pay for all of the costs. It's not a 100%. I mean, they actually subsidize it. Um, and I couldn't find any evidence that Seattle's fee and lieu program was working any better than or even as well as our mandatory inclusionary zoning program. Uh, fee and lieu, I mean, it, it is a good tool for the very lowest levels of affordability because you can't use inclusionary zoning for that. But, you know, I, I did some research into it. I couldn't see that it was a, a superior benefit for, I mean, the, the developers want it because it moves removes risks from, from them. It makes it easier for them and removes risk from them, but I couldn't see any benefit for us as a city for moving for, away from mandatory inclusionary zoning to total fee and loop. Thank you. All right, now Mr. Churchill. So we have planned to come back to you in two weeks and focus that discussion on Overlake and on green building and some of the code rewrite topics that you raised on the 6th at your staff report. Uh, but I think it would be helpful for staff just to get confirmation of some kind that, you know, this is basically headed in the right direction because the next time you see it will be in the form of an ordinance ask, asking you to adopt it or something very much like it. Uh, much later in the year, uh, it would come back to you in October with kind of everything else. Um, if, there, if there are other housing questions, so it's part two of the question. Um, if we could get those by email, maybe by um, the end of the holiday weekend so that we could prepare um, for the following study session if there are any other housing follow-ups. Thank you. Um, so council members, uh, keep that in mind. And, and I will say, I think we, we have the, the study session in two weeks. And as, as Mr. Churchill mentioned, um, we'll be making the decision further out. So, you know, we do have the opportunity if we don't next study session kind of wrap everything up or if there's any additional questions, we'll be able to, um, you know, continue to, to cover some of these this as needed. Um, but, uh, yeah, everyone hopefully will come prepared for uh, in two weeks to have a really robust conversation. Uh, Mayor Bernie. Thanks. Um, I, th I think... Um I think that the question you asked about inclusionary zoning, inclusionary zoning versus fee and lieu is interesting, and um, 
and I, I appreciate Sherry doing her homework, as always. Um, but I would actually love to get a little more um, detail from the staff on that as well, because um, we have had some great success with Fee and Lou with some very particular projects, um, and it has given us more units than we would have gotten um, with, with the project thinking of the one across the street. Um, and so I think that having some more data on that would be helpful um, in helping to determine what kind of what eventually what the right course of action is. Um, I, I think, you know, there have been comments this evening about the development community being very aware of this conversation and interested in the outcome. And, you know, I hope that they reach out even, you know, more robustly, if that's possible. Um, and, um, and ensure that we have um, really good data and information um, from all sources as well, um, you know, from also from our affordable housing providers, thank you, Arch, for being here tonight, um, to ensure that we're really, you know, having the full discussion. Um, I know Planning Commission has worked extremely hard on this, um, but I wanna make sure that as things kind of come to this body, we're also having some of those discussions as well. So that's just a suggestion in your work since we are going to 2050 with this. Yep, thank you very much. Um, so with that, we'll say thank you to the staff and we'll, we'll move on to the, the next item. And thank you so much, Commissioner Nichols, and, and thank you also for, for being here today. Really appreciate having your input. Thank you, council members. Thank you. Great. Um, the next item on the agenda is council talk time. So, um, a couple pieces of items, uh, as, as requested by some council members, did want to highlight a couple of the upcoming things that will be on our next business meeting agenda. Um, we'll have approval of a couple of different contracts that we saw come through committee, um, uh, including our, um, uh, or, and, and approval of some of the um, final acceptance of projects like our flashing uh, Beacon Crosswalks project and um, our Redmond Way ELSP uh, 180th Avenue Northeast Intersection, as well as um, the Wastewater Pump Station 13 replacement project, which is a, a $9 million contract. So some, some big contracts coming through. Um, and uh, and some in uh, the appointments to Cascade Water Alliance for tonight's um, discussion on on that topic, um, and then um, and then also we will also have uh, finally after having seen this have it come off and then come back on um, due to some differences at the um, State Building Code Council um, that we will be making some changes to our building code around um, electrical code and around um, energy as well as the wildland urban interface and plumbing codes as well. So um, something to look out for there. Um, and also, uh, uh, um, and then we also have, hmm. Oh, I see, yes. And then we have also a planning commission recommendation phase two amendments to the Redmond zoning and municipal codes, which was an item that the um, council previously had a study session on and said, let's move that item to consent separate from the one that we have today that we were just discussing. So um, that's, that's one piece of the work that will be moving forward. Um, and then we will also have on new business a vote on the Redmond Senior and Community Center budget increase to 
of, of $3.7 million um, to make a total project budget of $61,700,000 for that wonderful project that we're all excited to be able to cut the ribbon on soon. Um, so uh, that's going to be on new business per council request. So just want to flag that those are coming up for the business meeting next week. Um, and then also I, I sent out the extended agenda so that you all can, can see what's, what's on there as well. Um, and uh, speaking of, of the Redmond Senior and Community Center, just wanted to note for everyone that the date has been set um, for the opening um, on Friday, May 3rd at um, 1 p.m. And then there'll be a festival the next day to follow. So mark your calendars, save the date. We'll be getting out more information, but I know that the council's really excited about that and we're looking forward to it. Um, in terms of upcoming council events that I just wanted to remind everyone, I sent you an email, but I'll flag it also in public that we have upcoming um, in two weeks from now, approximately, our um, council retreat will be happening um, uh, here at City Hall, and the public is invited to come and watch us have our retreat if they like to, um, but it will be a time for us to talk about um, how we work together and um, some of our priorities for the year uh, and some things we want to work on together. Um, that's on February 24th. That's a Saturday um, here at City Hall in, in the Alpha Bravo room. Um, and then uh, the uh, other kind of key piece that I, I would note for council members is that we are also going to be following up doing our retreat with Anita Page in, at the end of April um, to be able to follow up on our respect, equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism work. Um, and we're going to use a fifth Tuesday to be able to do some of that work and, and do some retreats. So you, you'll be seeing something come out for that on, on that soon. Um, and then uh, last item that I'll put out there is I want to say thank Thanks to the council members that were able to attend the Association of Washington City City Action Days. Um, I know that, that I got a lot out of the conference um, being able to talk with council members from cities all across the state um, and be able to do some engagement with our legislators. I, over the last two weeks, we've had quite a few different engagements with them and been able to reiterate some of the city of Redmond's key asks. But I wanted to open the floor. I know we have two council members here today that, that attended, and I think, I think council, member, council Vice President Forsyth had to hop off, but um, if any of the council members here wanted to share, would love to open up the floor to see if you have anything you want to share with our fellow council members who, who weren't able to attend of, of just takeaways from the conference. Council member Salahuddin. Yep, thank you. Um, and I'll be, uh, I'll be brief. You can ask me questions after, but uh, I think the biggest takeaway was um, just the level of challenges and issues that um, the cities around the, the state are facing and they're, uh, you know, it, it seems like a lot of them are unique, some regarding ferries, some regarding, uh, you know, specifically roundabouts, things that are, um, you know, within communities um, that, you know, we might not have uh, access to in Redmond, but I think uh, the overarching theme was that there needs to be a lot more advocacy at the state level and, um, you know, I, a few folks from Redmond, both um, you know, Council President Kritzer and Mayor Bernie, both stood up and shared with the community um, and got a lot of positive reception around the work that Redmond specifically is doing um, towards our legislative asks, towards what we're doing as a city. And I think that that's really telling to um, you know, show Redmond as a leader across, across the state in a lot of the work that we're doing. So that was a big takeaway. I think uh, a lot of cities are looking at us to... Um, to mimic some of our success, whether or not it's uh, relevant. Councilmember Nueva Camina. I, what I love about um, 
conferences like this is that it, it brings us all together and um, referencing uh, as uh, Councilmember Salahuddin had said about the ferries and that even though it may not seem related, uh, you know, it actually impacts folks in Eastern Washington for agriculture. So what seems like it's not related because we are within the same state and we are interdependent upon each other. And sometimes it's easy for us to forget that. Uh, so conferences like this are so important to bring us together so that we can have this, this dialogue and, and share what the concerns are so that we can see, no, actually, we're, we're pretty connected. Thank you. Great, great thoughts. And Mayor Bernie, you were there as well. Uh, do you have any thoughts as well? Um, well, I thank the council members who are able to attend. I think it's always a good opportunity. I'm so glad our newest members got a little bit of something out of it. Um, the the opportunity to connect with with cities around the state is, I think, vitally important to really understand some of their different perspectives. I was able to sit with um, council members from Tacoma, council members from Richfield, council members from, you know, Eastern Washington, uh, Medellin Falls, and keep running into the mayor from there. She shows up to most of the AWC things. But, um, you know, really hearing about their challenges and many differences, but also uh, many similarities. And one of the other, I think, exciting things about AWC is that it's nonpartisan. And so we really just talk about city issues. And um, I, I just think that's a fantastic opportunity to learn and grow. So thanks for coming. Thanks for going. Um, you know, I think our community is better because we get these opportunities to kind of stretch and learn more about what else is happening in the state and what we can bring back to the city of Redmond. Yeah, and I, I will echo on that. I think one of the things that strikes me the most of just a theme that we're dealing with here in Redmond, and sometimes it feels like because we're, as, as our new tagline for Redmond 2050, as we're going from suburb to city, is that growth is, is really on the mind. But I think what's interesting when you get with all these different cities, some of which have 300 people, and then some of which have you know hundreds of thousands of people, um, is that everyone is dealing with growth. Uh, even even the ones that that have only you know 500 people that that they are also trying to figure out how to manage this and so um, it is really interesting to be in conversations around this and around specifically housing and, and how we're all very interconnected um, and I will note that uh, you know the uh, the governor spoke to all of the cities and emphasized in particular during his speech how important it is for cities to step up and help to in particular address the need for low-income housing um, and, uh, and, and that really at the state level folks are watching what we do in the cities. So um, it means a lot for us, us in Redmond to be doing what we're doing and, and it made me really proud to know um, that we're a city that's, that's helping to lead on that. Um, so yeah, um, uh, with that I don't have any other items but I will ask council members do you have any other items or questions? Council member Stewart. Couple of items, thanks. Um, just on the next um, business meeting, Council President Kritzer mentioned the new business item uh, around the senior center. I spoke with Director Cochran and confirmed um, that council will be receiving the follow-up information that we requested on the real estate excise tax revenues and how that's all looking. It's actually gonna be in your council packet for next week. So it, not in a separate email, but that's great. 
because then the public can see it as well. So it'll be in there. Look for that. Um, thanks for sharing what you all heard in Olympia. I was not able to attend and get away from work, but I was able to, since I was in town, to attend the event we heard about for last Thursday night, which was the Bellwether Housing Open House in Overlake. So this is the project going in the Overlake TOD um, right next to the Overlake Village light rail station. So they reviewed the project. It's obviously um, something that staff are still working through the process on, so I won't speak too much out of turn, um, but was nice to make contact um, there. Um, and then I had a question around, um, thanks for mentioning the retreat next weekend. The question as I wrote it was, what does it look like to be prepared for next weekend? Because it's actually, it. You said it's nearly two weeks away, but it's next weekend, so it's coming up quick. Yeah, well, um, Council Vice President Forsyth and I were able to meet with our facilitator, who, as, as I mentioned, is the executive director of MRSC, so I think we'll bring some really good ideas, and, and we had a really great brainstorm with her around kind of what the needs are, what we've heard from council members in terms of discussion topics, and um, she was going to kind of take that back and, and, and let us know um, some ideas of how we might organize it based on some of her expertise. So we're waiting back for that, but as soon as I get it, I'll send out the agenda to all of you in advance so that way you can know what we're going to cover and there'll be a little bit of pre-work of a couple questions for you to think about um, and potentially a form just to send in a couple of your top priorities so we can kind of pre-collate that list um, and and be able to even share that out so you can think on it you don't have to see it for the first time um, during the retreat okay so that sounds like it'll be um Soon. Soon, and then soon uh, for a response. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and one of your comments reminded me, um, one other comment that I, I did want to note uh, based on something that's been a priority for council um, that we did advocate for uh, in some of our meetings over the last couple weeks, and I, we had a breakfast with our legislators while we were in Olympia last week, was just um, really making sure that we talked to our key legislators um, about the Rewrap Act, which has been a big priority for council. Um, and I know that there was some, some movement on that in the last week, so we, um, we really tried to emphasize the importance of that as well as some of our other city, city asks. So just, just one, I know, but just wanted to highlight that we did, we did attempt to um, support that, that ask. Apologies, I thought you were asking for more action, so. No, it was it was just to, to note that I know this has been a big city priority, and I just wanted to highlight how um, we did we did make our best effort to be able to get all of our legislators on board for that. Any other comments, questions? All right. Well, if there are no other items for um, the council, this meeting is adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>